Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving thirty three percent with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a fifteen stem bunch of tulips for just nine ninety nine each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
You are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 43. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 43. I nearly said 1956 there. I nearly said delegation game as well, but I didn't. There's so much going on right now in Wendell Pelosi Fells Towers, but we're doing great. We're having a great time. We're releasing a lot of wonderful history, and you guys are really absorbing it and digesting it and letting me know that you're enjoying it too. So that's great. It makes all the difference when I get such fantastic support. A huge shout out to a particular patron who became Grand Hetman of the Crown. In other words, $100 pledge a month. You are an absolute hero, Mr. Sivatoslav Urash. I didn't say I was good at pronunciation. And yet, somehow, you still love me anyway. It's great. It's really fantastic. I fell off my chair when I saw that. And he never asked me to say his pledge, but I just wanted to give him a big shout out and say thanks so much. When I'm getting support like this, it reminds me that I really am so privileged to do this. So that's why I didn't put any advertisement or anything in here. And I literally just said, let's launch this episode. So here we are, the Freikorps European Tour. A very important part of the Versailles Anniversary Project story. And a very understated part of it too. People don't really talk about the Freikorps. They don't really think of what Germany was doing while the Paris Peace Conference was underway. They don't think of it because it's not really part of the mainstream conventional narrative. We think of the big three walking around. We think of Germany being really unfairly dictated to. But we don't think of what Germany was actually doing in that six-month period, even though it's quite an interesting story. It all forms part of the German Revolution, which pretty much was going on at this point, and Germans were trying to bring in some kind of democratic republic. They had already hosted a constituent assembly in Weimar, and they'd started to try and form a government with Friedrich Ebert as president. The last several episodes have taken us to an in-depth examination of the Council of Ten in late February, but now that our narrative has made its way to March, our mission changes somewhat. We have yet to really be introduced to the situation going on in Russia, and in the next few episodes, we will redress this imbalance somewhat. What's the purpose of investigating Russia, you may be wondering? Well, there's two major reasons. The first is that affairs in Paris, while they certainly were not quiet in the first fortnight of March, they had calmed down somewhat, which gives us a chance to switch our focus to a pressing problem that had been affecting the nerves and concentration of the different delegates present in Paris for some time. The second reason is that March 1919 can be seen as the year when the Allies engaged more directly with the Russian question, and when Bolshevism itself began to escape from its box, most notably in the Bolshevik Revolution in Budapest in the 21st of March. An American by the name of William Bullitt would be given a very specific and largely forgotten mission by his president. Travel to Russia, meet with Lenin, deduce what the Bolsheviks wanted, see what they could offer, see if compromise or peace in the civil war was possible, and discern whether Russia truly had been lost to this revolutionary regime. Bullitt's mission was supposed to be an absolute secret, the truth of which was known only to the major leaders of the five great powers. Bullitt would go to Russia full of optimism, only to return disillusioned and become one of Woodrow Wilson's harshest, bitterest critics. Leaving on the 8th of March and returning on the 25th, Bullitt's two-and-a-half-week trip revealed much to him about this shattered country, but as far as his findings went, he found that few people actually cared to listen. Bullitt's journey is a fascinating window into Bolshevik Russia's early phase, but before we examine his journey, we have to investigate what Russia looked like in spring 1919. 
To do that, we have to examine what happened before spring 1919, and by that, I don't mean look at the Russian Revolution. I don't believe it's necessary to revisit that period of history. Instead, in this unusually brief episode, but don't worry, we'll be making up for it in time, we turn our attention to the Freikorps, those unruly bands of former German soldiers and others who made it their mission to ensure that the war would never stop. In this Freikorps European tour, that portion of land in between Russia and Germany suffered, particularly in the Baltic. Darkly prophetic dreams of living space, of imperial expansion, and of the extermination of those elements which were not German all characterised this Freikorps experience, as did bloody clashes with communist or Russian elements. It was, in some respects, like an anticipation of, or prequel to, the Soviet-Nazi war which tore the region to pieces, and it deserves our attention in this story because it helps to add more flesh to the bones of the world which hosted the Paris Peace Conference. As if you needed reminding, this world was a very hostile place indeed in early 1919, and the Freikorps European tour is merely one ugly chapter within that terrible hostility. Let's investigate it then, as I take you all, interestingly enough, to the period immediately following the armistice in November 1918's Baltic States. One very forgotten aspect of the First World War is that it did not end at all cleanly on the 11th of November 1918, or even on the 28th of June 1919. It was instead a conflict which dragged on and on into the 1920s, and left scars behind which could never be digested all at once. Most of us instinctively know this. It forms part of the reason that we are taught that World War I led to World War II, If it had truly ended in 1918, then the sequel would never have been necessary. Of course, that perspective cannot be totally ignored, but it can be debated, as we've done already in our project, and as we'll do more in the future. What I find interesting, though, is the reasons often given by people who portray World War I leading automatically to World War II. Why was this the case? It was the Treaty of Versailles, they might say. It was the the stabbed-in-the-back myth, others might claim. It was French harshness and lack of foresight, claim others. But what about the Germans themselves? What were the Germans doing immediately after the Great War? How did Germans survive that rocky period of transition from empire to republic? And what impact did this experience have on the psyche of the German people in the years to come? On that, most people are silent because most do not know. The story of the German Revolution is not taught in schools. Friedrich Ebert's name is barely known outside of Germany, and the Social Democratic Party are hardly known either. Another entity, the Freikorps, is equally unknown and largely misunderstood, even though the story surrounding this fringe organisation helps to fill in so many blanks about how the Germans felt about the defeat in the war and how they coped, as well as what life was like in the regions of the world where empires did not exist for the first time in living memory. The October Revolution and the Armistice had crippled the powers of the Russian and German empires respectively, but neither of these actors withdrew quietly or capably during the immediate post-war period. Instead, the vacuum which they left behind enabled nationalist movements to emerge in Poland, Ukraine, the Baltic states and in Finland. Some of these states, such as Poland, enjoyed sufficient allied support and attention, while others like Finland managed to secure their independence through a bloody civil war. 
In the case of the Baltic states and the Ukraine, though, this power vacuum presented opportunities, but the nation-states which sought to avail of this opportunity were fragile indeed. In fact, so fragile were these states that it took only a rapid Red Army invasion in mid-November 1918 for the clock to run out on their independence. With the Bolsheviks in control of the Baltic states, including the powerhouse city of Riga, by early January 1919, it became a matter of necessity for the Allies in Paris to act, and yet they could not. None of the Big Five possessed the capabilities to intervene and liberate the Latvians, Estonians or Lithuanians from their Bolshevik prison, since many were still involved in the Russian Civil War, as we will see. The really incredible element of this story, though, is that once the Allied governments were faced with this dilemma, they turned to the only power in the region equipped to deal with it, Germany. What makes this story even more worthy of our attention, as if you weren't convinced already, is that Ebert's government did not feel it had men to spare for this mission. So, who did they send instead? That's right, they sent in the Freikorps. In return for marching to the aid of the Baltic states, the repressed national governments of Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania promised the Freikorps units land to settle on, a reward which appealed to the blood-and-soil mentality held dear by so many Germans on the right wing who happened to fight for the Freikorps organisation. The problem, predictably enough, was that once these Freikorps units arrived in the Baltic and in a frenzy of blood evicted the Bolsheviks, they decided that they'd rather stay in a position of power rather than just accept a measly plot of land. What was more, the Freikorps took it upon themselves to install puppet governments in the Baltic states. But what was their aim in doing this? Well, to extend the writ of the German Empire, they said, which they refused to accept had died, and to prolong the war, which they refused to believe, had ended. You may recall that quote I shared with you before while talking about the Freikorps, where one of its members had remarked, We laughed when they told us the war was over because we were the war. This quote speaks to the deeply ingrained belief which these Freikorps held, so long as they were breathing and fighting and killing in the name of Germany, the grim reality of the defeat could be ignored and new opportunities could be taken advantage of. For those caught in the crossfire of this German identity crisis, they were destined to pay the ultimate price. One soldier of the Freikorps, who we met before, Ernst von Salomon, recalled the horrendously brutal nature of the warfare which he and his men engaged in regularly. We fired into surprised crowds, and we raged, we shot, and we burned. We chased the Latvians like rabbits over the fields. We burned every house and destroyed every bridge and every telegraph mast. We flung the bodies into fountains and threw hand grenades on top. We slaughtered whoever fell into our hands. We burned whatever would catch fire. There were no human feelings left in our hearts. A giant smoke trail marked our path. We had set fire to the stake where we burned the laws and values of the civilised world. For Ernst von Salomon in this case, he and his comrades were not merely lashing out in a spirit of bitterness. They were genuinely trying to escape reality because by the time Salomon recorded these awful memories, the Treaty of Versailles had actually been signed. Once the city of Riga was captured by the Freikorps, from the Bolsheviks, an orgy of violence had followed where 3,000 citizens had been murdered on suspicion of having sympathised with the Bolshevik regime. The Bolsheviks essentially withdrew from the Baltic states once Riga fell in late May 1919, but the entry of the Freikorps into that city was not a joyous occasion for the local population. 
women were especially likely to be targeted. And the Freikorps did not distinguish between Bolsheviks or Germans. In other words, you were either a German citizen or a traitor and a Bolshevik. There was no concept of independence for Baltic peoples or Latvian nationality. The anger of the Baltic Germans now rampaged through the streets of Riga, recalled Freikorps soldier Eric Bala. It is horrible to admit this, but it was mostly directed against young women between the ages of 16 to 20. Before their arrival outside Riga's city limits, it had been said that these women had slept with the Bolshevik enemy, had engaged in reprehensible acts, and had betrayed their German allies to the Bolshevik bullets. Whether these tales held any elements of truth or not, it soon became apparent that all women were fair game in the wretched city of Riga. They did not see their youth or their charm, Eric Bala continued. They saw only the face of the devil as they were beating, shooting, stabbing them to death wherever they showed. On the 22nd of May 1919, 400 rifle women were lying in their blood in the streets of Riga. Callously, the nailed boots of the marching German volunteers stepped over them. The combined effect of hatred towards the Bolsheviks, elation at the defeat of their forces, dismay at the news of the Treaty of Versailles, anger towards Bolshevik sympathisers, the fear of things going back to normal, and the sheer brutalisation which this episode instilled within the Freikorps soldiery, all played their part. The Freikorps which remained after the fall of Riga refused to accept orders from the British to withdraw. Instead, they determined that the time was right to march into Estonia and take over that country too. But the consequences of their actions in Latvia followed them there, and in a series of clashes over the last week of June, the combined forces of Latvian partisans and Estonian nationalists inflicted several defeats on the dwindling Freikorps numbers. That should have been the end, but it was not. Taking advantage of the disorganised state of the country, some 14,000 Freikorps fortified themselves within Latvia and teamed up with some white Russian partisans, prolonging the war and prolonging the agony of the Latvian people. Almost as soon as they had disobeyed the orders from London, the Freikorps were disowned by Friedrich Ebert's government, but this had had little effect on them, because they hated his government anyway. Throughout the summer of 1919 and into the autumn, these Freikorps lived off the land in Latvia and inflicted absolute misery on those citizens unfortunate enough to be found in their path. It is a period of history which is virtually unknown today, but its impact was felt in the thousands of deaths and needless destruction which the already depleted, aching region was forced to absorb. Operating as though it was up to them to fulfil the terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which had seen Russia cede the Baltic states to Germany, the Freikorps seemed determined to fight to the bitter end. Like all viruses, though, the Freikorps did eventually burn themselves out. By November, a great number had withdrawn from Latvia and returned home, Many others enlisted with the White Russians to fight more Bolsheviks, and some did fulfil the German dream. They carved out estates or small farms for themselves in the embers of the Baltic states. Much of these settlers would eagerly welcome the arrival of the Nazis in the invasion of 1941, while many more would be forcibly ejected during the mass population transfers which followed the end of the Second World War. This examination of the fate of the Freikorps demonstrates how some Germans reacted to the end of the war and how they swallowed the bitter pill of military defeat. The narrative continued to be shaped because for those that had fought with grit and brutality against the Bolsheviks in the Baltic, 
Friedrich Ebert's failure to support them in their mission to go all the way and forcibly annex the Baltic into the new German Weimar Republic provided a further sense of being stabbed in the back by that cowardly government. Ebert's government, it could be said, took orders not from patriotic Germans, but from the former enemy who demanded that Germans cease in their victorious march eastwards and come back home. It is impossible to know precisely what influence this experience had on Germans over the subsequent years, but as we have already established, the Freikorps current which ran through the Nazi party is impossible to ignore. The tales of Freikorps bravery, of Baltic expansion, of adventure and living off the land, contributed to the ideals of blood and soil which the Nazis espoused, and which young men and boys imagined as the ideal version of manhood. The frontier life, captured so fantastically by the Freikorps, sounded almost too good to be true. But the sad fact is that so many Germans who grew up with their tales, much of them whitewashed over the subsequent years, would themselves be returned to this region during the Second World War, and would bear witness to the horrific realisation of the Freikorps dream, but this time clad in Nazi clothing. For these Freikorps, who kept their stories alive in the years to come, the ending of the Great War had only been a technicality. For them, the war had not ended, it had merely been put on hold, and the arrival of a new national saviour gave them the chance to unpause the story of misery and destruction, which they had always dreamed to relive again. In the meantime, the Baltic states existed in a terrified limbo between the furies of the Freikorps in the west and the fearsome Bolsheviks in the east. They were among the first lands to be absorbed by a quietly vengeful Soviet Union in late 1939 to early 1940. But for the decades in between Freikorps destruction and Soviet occupation, the scars were never all that far away. The retreat of the Bolsheviks from the Baltic and the enlistment of many embittered Freikorps units within the White Russian Army suggested that the Russian Civil War was about to enter its terminal phase. Could the Bolsheviks possibly survive? Or would their utopian Russia fall victim to the combined onslaught of vengeful Russians, disenfranchised Germans and interfering Allied powers? The fate of Russia hung in the balance. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.